far as I said before, uh, we're not uh, at a passage of scripture that traditionally is uh, understood to be a Christmas text. Uh, in one sense, I don't apologize for that. We will have time uh, to address the, the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, next week, uh, this evening in our evening service, we'll be looking at a great uh, a messianic text from the Old Testament that uh, looks to the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ, Micah chapter 5, verse 2. I would invite you to that service. Um, but we're, what we're going to do is we're going to pick up uh, where we left off uh, a couple of weeks ago when we were, again, in this uh, Gospel of Mark. And I do think there is a way in which we are able, going to be able to roll in some of the ideas or some of the themes of the Incarnation in this passage of Scripture. But what I want to do is I want to, as I said before, deal with this passage of Scripture from the perspective of the questions that the disciples are asking. These questions are questions that are coming to them because of what they had just seen and because of what they've just heard the Lord Jesus Christ say. You remember on the Mount of Transfiguration, there they were. And they saw, they saw this great display of Jesus Christ in his essential glory. There was this flashing through of his essential nature, as it, as it, as it, uh, if we can say it this way, again, flashed through the veil of flesh. There on that Mount of Transfiguration, something of his glory was seen. And in a very real way, it was what our Lord was speaking of when he said there were some that were standing there that would not taste death until they had seen the kingdom come in its glory. And the king in his glory was flashing through, we might say. And so it was a wonderful thing to see. It was a wonderful thing to think about uh, those disciples on that mountain in that day. And there they were coming down from the mountain now. And what our Lord Jesus Christ says, and we're expecting this now because we've seen this a number of times, our Lord Jesus Christ says to them, tell no man the things that you have seen until after the Son of Man is risen from the dead. And the questions come up. The questions that the disciples ask. Now again, let me just step back for a moment. We are not at this point surprised any longer that our Lord Jesus Christ would say to his disciples, do not reveal my true messianic character until a certain time. And it's very interesting how many times we've seen this in the Gospel of Mark. And what's interesting is that we, we know, because we've interacted with this before, I'm only going to review here, we've interacted with this before, that you know that what our Lord was intending to do was to make sure that the crowds of that day, the people of that day, did not run away with an idea of the Messiah that was not truly biblical or truly his own. Yes, the Messiah would be a great worker of miracles, but that's not all the Messiah was. Much more was, was important to the concept of Messiah. Yes, the Messiah was a great preacher and teacher, but much more would need to be uh, unveiled before uh, that uh, idea could be picked up on. And so our Lord oftentimes in this gospel, a number of times already, had already said, hold off, don't make these things known. Now it's interesting, those that were not of the immediate circle of the disciples, they couldn't help themselves and they made it known on a number of occasions. But here these disciples were, again, they were, they were keeping it uh, to themselves. But they were asking these questions. And even before we get to the questions, what I would say is this. As we look at the Lord Jesus Christ uh, and his miracles that he worked, and he says, don't let my messianic character be known uh, as of yet. When, he looked, when we look to his great teaching, he says, don't let my messianic character be known yet. We can even, again, apply this to the season in which we live. This day, this season of, of Christmas. And what I would say to you is, is the following. Here we are, in a few weeks, going to be celebrating the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I want you to know and understand that if you know and realize and embrace Christ as an infant come into the world, that's not enough. You see, just like knowing Jesus Christ as a great miracle worker is not enough. 
Just like knowing Jesus Christ as a great teacher is not enough. Just like, just like knowing Jesus Christ was able to, to have these crowds fall, it's not enough. So knowing Jesus Christ coming into the world as a baby is not enough. You see, there is the reality of his work on the cross as a substitute for sinners. In a very real way, we can say this about Christmas. Christmas cannot be understood apart from Calvary. We know these things. Christmas cannot be understood apart from his dying and rising again. And that's exactly where our Lord is going in this passage of Scripture. Don't tell any of the glory that you've seen until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. And so we understand these things by way of the setting of the Gospel of Mark. We understand these things as as those who have come to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We know as much as we rejoice and and thank God for Christmas and everything that it means, we're thankful as as Christians that uh, uh, that we still live in a society where the birth of Christ, even though it's misunderstood, it's still celebrated. And we can pick up on those themes and we can say to our friends, oh, this is what Christmas is all about. We're thankful for that. But we know and we understand that, oh, you see, the gospel is more than just Christ coming as a babe. The gospel is Jesus Christ coming to the world to save sinners. And in order to save sinners, he must, in the very words of our Lord Jesus Christ, he must suffer and rise again the third day. And so all these things come together here. And so here's our Lord interacting with the disciples in in this regard. And what's interesting here is that... uh, the, the concept of Jesus being revealed as the Son of God is, in one sense, the centerpiece of the Gospel of Mark. As, as I've been working through this Gospel of Mark, I've been thinking to myself, uh, uh, not necessarily that there's not a lot of parallels um, with what we see in the Gospel of John. I, I say that with a little bit of caution. But when we go to the Gospel of John, what we know is this, is that John writes with a, with a stated purpose. Uh, John 20, verse 21, these, these things, or 21, uh, verse 20, I believe it is, these things are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life in his name. That's stated. Well, in Mark, we can, we can discern Mark's purpose, although it's not stated as clearly as John's, as John's is. And in Mark's purpose is that you and I embrace Jesus Christ as the Son of God, as the Messiah that's coming to the world to save sinners. And the reason why I say that is because at very pivotal places, Mark sets before us Jesus as the Son of God. Now, he does this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He's not some kind of an author just writing and saying, I'll put a certain kind of story together. He's not doing that. He's writing again under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, you have these strategic statements where Jesus Christ is revealed as the Son of God. And we have them on the lips of the whole array of created beings, and also by way of the Father himself. And so abundant testimony is given concerning who Jesus Christ is. So that when Mark starts his gospel, what does he say? This is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. There's the key. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. We come into into other passages as well. And the next time we see it is in, uh, I believe it's in Mark chapter 3, verse 11. Uh, we read the following. And the unclean spirits, when they saw him, fell down and cried, saying, Thou art the Son of God. And now we're getting used to this. Verse 12. And straightly he charged them that they should not make him known. Again, this begins that whole idea. Jesus' character is being unveiled. He says, Not yet. The work must, the groundwork must be laid out and established for his crucifixion. The next time we see uh, this declaration of our Lord Jesus Christ by way of his essential nature is again on the Mount of Transfiguration, Mark 8, 29 and 30. And he saith unto them, I'm sorry, the, uh, not the Transfiguration, but the confession of Peter. And he saith unto them, but whom say ye that I am? And Peter answered and said unto them, thou art the Christ. And here we go again, we expect this. And he charged them that they should tell no man of him. 
And so again, what is he doing? He is revealing his character, but he's saying, not yet. The time of my full revelation must be held off until people understand that the Messiah that is to come is a suffering Messiah. And we see it again on the Mount of Transfiguration, as I said before. Mark chapter 9, verse 7. And there was a cloud that overshadowed them, and a voice came from the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son, hear him. And now today's text, as they're coming down from the mountain, what does Jesus say? And he's charged them that they should tell no man of the things that he had seen. So what we see happening here is the setting forth of Jesus Christ as the Son of God, strategically through the gospel, and on the lips of very significant uh, individuals or beings. Now, again, I don't want to give more credit to, uh, to, to, to the demons than what I should, but I do want you to understand that there is a sense in which even the enemies of Christ know who he is. That's the idea there. I want you to see that Peter, under the, under the guidance and with the illumination of the Spirit of God, says the right thing concerning Christ. I want you to hear the, 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 the voice of the Father on the Mount of Transfiguration say, This is my beloved Son. And then the next time we have Jesus Christ referred to as the Son of God is at His crucifixion. And again, this is all, again, in, by way of the design of the gospel. The design of the gospel is to bring you to that understanding conviction that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So there's the centurion. He sees Jesus Christ, again, truly uh, put to death for unjust reasons. He sees Jesus Christ hanging on the cross. And what does he say? Mark fifteen thirty nine. And when the centurion, which stood over against him, saw that he cried, uh, that he so cried out and gave up the ghost, he said, truly, this man is, uh, this man was the son of God. And what I want you to see then here is this. Here is the centurion. Here are, these, here are these places in the gospel where Jesus Christ is embraced as the Son of God. Here we are celebrating Christmas. Do you embrace Jesus just as a babe in a, in, 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 in a manger? Or do you embrace him as the Son of God? You see, that's the thrust of the gospel of Mark. And as I said before, whereas John makes it very clear, these, these things are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Mark does this by way of a strategic placing of these events or of these statements. And until Jesus Christ has laid the groundwork that he is a suffering Savior, until Jesus Christ lays the groundwork that it's not sufficient just to see him as a beautiful babe in a manger with all the, with all the emotions that tug on our hearts uh, when we think of everything that, uh, that Mary and Joseph went through, it's, it, it, again, it's, it's, it, we need to know it. But it's not, what, it's not what the thrust of the gospel is. Oh, you see, the thrust of the gospel is a, is a Savior who came to save sinners. And so there he is, setting his glory aside. And there he is, again, walking on this earth as a man in a, humble, in a humble condition. And there he is, abused and mocked and rejected of men. And there he is, dying for sinners. And there he is, again, the third day, rising from the dead. Why? Because God set his seal upon him. The Lord Jesus Christ, again, could not stay in the grave. And so here we have here, again, this, this whole kind of framework as they're coming down from the mountain. And again, they're, they're asking these questions. Uh, as I said, that when, when we look at everything that's being said here uh, by way of the Jesus Christ as the, as, as the Son of God, we can even bring one of, our, one of our traditional Christmas texts to bear here. You see, if Mark is setting before us the reality that Jesus is the Son of God, doesn't this remind us of one of the great Christmas texts in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6? For unto us a child is born. Oh, there's our, there's our, there's our babe in the manger. Unto us a son is given. Oh, the glory of this one who is the son of God. And Mark is writing this gospel to move you and me to this conviction that he is the son of God. And as the son of God, he comes not only in display of his majesty, he comes in humility in order to die for sinners. 
And I'm telling you, you don't know what Christmas is until you've embraced him by faith in his suffering, death, and his resurrection. And so again, this passage of scripture that in one sense has nothing to do with Christmas. How can we preach about Christ and not bring together the ideas of, of Christmas and Easter as well? And, and this is what's happening in this passage. Here it is, the Son of God declared to be on the Mount of Transfiguration. And as, he, and as he comes down from the mountain, what does he say? Tell no man until after I was risen from the dead. This reminds us of, of, an, of another great Old Testament passage of Scripture, Isaiah 53. Again, there he is, wounded for our transgressions. There, uh, there, there he is. You know, the chastisement of my peace was upon him. And so these two themes, Christmas and Easter, are all brought together. Oh, what a wonderful, what a wonderful, glorious message you have to declare to this lost and dying world. You see, when our Lord commanded his true nature be not revealed until after he suffer and die, he is teaching us that no person can truly understand who he is apart from his bloody substitutionary death and his rising again from the dead. This means that none of us can understand Christmas apart from his dying for sinners. As one man put it, he says this, there is no way to rightly understand Christmas and who Jesus is until one has seen him suffer, die, and rise again. And I have to give credit to the writer here. Notice what he says, until that one person has seen him suffer, die, and rise again. Well, none of us has seen that with the physical eye. Oh, but by way of the eye of faith, our eyes being set on the words of Scripture, the Spirit of God making these things a reality to us. Have you seen Christ dying for your sins? You know, what does the Apostle Paul say? How the Christ crucified was evidently set before you. And that's what preaching does. Preaching brings to our conscience the reality of what Christ has done. And so again, this thing of Christmas, we thank God for it. Oh, what would Christmas be without Jesus Christ suffering and dying? We would not even have such a thing as Christmas. And so we have these questions, these questions. And as I said before, aren't you glad that, that, that questions don't disqualify you from following Christ? I love that thought. I really do. Because I have questions too. Who doesn't? <laughs> how can we come to the text of Scripture and not have, not have questions? Well, how does this work out? How do we understand that? How do we apply this to our lives? And so again, these questions. But what's interesting here is that the questions that, uh, that, that are uh, in the minds of the disciples, it's kind of interesting because there seem to be like two categories of questions, but they only ask Christ about one category. Notice, what, notice what I'm, why I say that. Notice what we have here again in verse 9. And as they came down from the mountain, he charged them that they should tell no man what things they had seen till the Son of Man were risen from the dead. And they kept that saying within themselves. Now notice this, questioning one another what the rising from the dead should mean. Now what's interesting here is this. There would have been in their mind an understanding of some sort of a general resurrection. Some, the resurrection in and of itself would not have confounded them. Uh, uh, Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, uh, speaks about a, a resurrection, some unto, uh, uh, some unto glory and some unto shame. Uh, Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. Uh, we see also uh, uh, that uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, when he is, uh, when he is ministering to, to Martha and Mary at the death of Lazarus, uh, who, who was it? Uh, 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 Martha uh, uh, says, uh, uh, when Jesus says, do you believe your brother will rise? And Martha says, that in the resurrection, I know that he will rise. And, and Jesus goes on to say those famous words, I am the resurrection. The life. So the concept of a resurrection would have been in their thinking. 
other passages as well. Uh, again, um, when the uh, when the Sadducees uh, are trying to are trying to uh, catch Jesus in his words, uh, they say in verse in Matthew twenty two verse twenty eight. Therefore, in the resurrection, and you remember the Sadducees didn't even believe in the resurrection, but they were using the accepted idea of the resurrection as a means whereby to trip up the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife shall she be of the seven? So again, the idea is this: the, the concept of a resurrection would not have bewildered them. What was what was causing the question in their mind was, how is the Messiah rising from the dead? That was the issue. How was Messiah rising from the dead? What is this with a, with a dead Messiah? How, how, does the, how, does the, how does this fit into our whole understanding of it? Now again, stop and think of where they're coming from. They're coming down from the mountain. The Father himself said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Peter earlier in Mark, in Mark chapter 8, a chapter before, said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of God. They're convinced at this point that Jesus is the Messiah. And you remember now how immediately after they confessed Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus began to talk to them about the value of the soul. What shall a man give in exchange for his soul? That everything came down to this idea of suffering, and fall, uh, uh, suffering with Christ and following him. So again, they understand this. But now this idea of what does it mean for Messiah to die and to rise again? And that's the question that comes up. So it's kind of interesting because if we were to take a step back and say, okay, let's look at these questions. The questions fall into two categories. The questions fall into the categories of the person and work of Christ, technically sometimes referred to as Christology. And secondly, the questions fall into the category of what's going to happen at the end times which revolve around the introduction of Elijah. Because Elijah, in the common thinking, again, was to come back before Messiah. So there are questions, for those of you who are, who are familiar with these terms and these categories, the questions concern Christology and eschatology. What are some of the most common questions that we deal with today are Christology and eschatology. When is Christ coming? What's it going to look like? So all these things. So it's interesting to see this. But again, as, as, I, as I said before, uh, the, uh, the idea of the resurrection uh, would, have, would have not been uh, disturbing to them. The, the questions that they have revolve around uh, this, uh, this idea of, uh, of what it was for Christ to suffer and to die. And I do want to come back to this, to this point of, of questions again. And why, do I, why am I emphasizing this? Because I want you to be assured as I said before, that the Lord Jesus Christ is not intimidated by your questions. By your sincere and honest questions, he is not intimidated by them. And as I said before, your questions do not disqualify you from following Jesus Christ truly. But I have to say this. Can I, can I plead with you at this point? Can I ask you to show all reverence and patience with God in your questions? Can I warn you against a devil who will cause you to be impatient with God in your questions? Can I warn you against an enemy that will cause you to say within yourself, well, God never answers my questions when I ask him and this and that. And can I warn you against making shipwreck of faith? Do you know how many times, how many things in your, in your current life you engage without question even though you don't understand the whole thing? guarantee you when you started your car this morning you didn't say to yourself okay I'm going to turn the key a spark and gas and air and all that you didn't say that you just did it and most of you are probably saying about me boy there's a whole lot more come on pastor there's a whole lot more that goes on than just that okay fair enough I didn't question it though I didn't give up on the car 
got in the car and I drove it. And let me say this, oh, it may be a very simplistic plea for faith here, but understand this. Your questions, you see, God will answer them in due time. Your questions, again, they, they don't disqualify you. But make sure that the enemy does not use your questions to make shipwreck of your faith. These questions, you see. Questions, questions concerning Christ. How can Messiah die? He's, he's coming as a conqueror. And you see, that brings us to the point. What happened with the disciples was that they were embracing the common predominant view of Messiah in that day. Messiah for them was truly a, a political hero conquering the enemies of Israel. Messiah was truly one who would exert, again, rule and authority over the nations of the earth. And let me say this, there are those themes in the, in, in, in the scripture that will indeed come to fruition. I'm convinced, I'm convinced that Jesus Christ will rule and reign physically in the earth. I'm convinced of these things. I believe that what we, what we read of in Psalm 2 about Jesus Christ, again, uh, ruling and reigning in this world, is we are going to see it. But again, what our Lord is saying here in the, in, in, in the Gospels is, is that before that happens, he must suffer. And this is interesting because there was sufficient evidence in the Old Testament scriptures for them to embrace this. And what it reminds us of is just how humble we have to be when we come to the word of God. Amen. And that oftentimes it's not just what the predominant view is. We have to come back again to the, to the authority of scripture. And we have to come, as I said before, with true humility before the word of God. And what happened here to the disciples is this, is they were caught up on this, on this idea of this great political messianic uh, uh, conqueror that was coming in, that was going to overthrow all the enemies of Israel. Well, that's going to happen. But there was a greater work that needed to be done. And the greater work was the deliverance of the, from the power of sin. And for that to happen, he himself must experience sin. For that to happen, he must destroy death by way of death itself and rise up again victorious and say, What? Oh, death, where is thy sting? You see this work of Jesus Christ. And so again, their questions, as I said here, their questioning shows that they still had the predominant views of the Messiah as a great conqueror who would free the people from Roman oppression. Their expectations were still politically centered. And this shows that even though they were making headway in their understanding of who Christ is, they were not, full, they were not fully yet, uh, they, didn't, they did not fully yet understand him or his purpose. And this would not happen until after his death and particularly after the coming of the Spirit of God. You see, if I, can put, if I can put it this way, that the resurrection, the death, the resurrection, and then the, and, and then the coming of the Holy Spirit set everything in its right view. Until that time, they had pieces of puzzles on the table, so to speak. But when the resurrection comes, and when the Spirit of God descends, these things all line up, and they begin to see and understand that Christ must suffer according to the Scriptures. Then Peter will go on to say in one of his epistles, he will speak about the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow, that the Son of Man must suffer. And so this is everything that our Lord Jesus Christ is emphasizing as they are coming down from the mountain. But notice again what we have here. And I find this interesting. Again, verse 10. They kept that saying within themselves, questioning one another what the rising of the dead should mean. Now again, it all, it all surrounds the idea of Messiah dying and rising. They don't have their mind around that yet. But isn't it interesting where they go with their question? They, they don't ask the Lord Jesus Christ about this dying. They don't ask him about his rising again from the dead. And again, that kind of was, was, had been touched on in the past. So they, so they don't ask him that question anymore. And I do find it interesting that our Lord Jesus allows them to, to, to have these kind of questions going on. 
I do think Jesus wants us thinking through scriptural propositions. I do think Jesus wants us chewing on the word and saying, okay, how does this work out? And what's this and what's that? I do think Jesus wants us engaged, in, actively, intellectually engaged with the word of God. And he allows them to, to think on these things. But I find it interesting that they, they ask another question. And the question they ask is an interesting question. It's a question of, again, of, of, of eschatology. What's eschatology? Eschatology is that study of last things. Uh, there are two categories of eschatology. There's general eschatology, which refers to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, the establishment of his kingdom. There's personal eschatology. <clears throat> personal eschatology is the personal end uh, of each and every one of us. One day you and I will die. And what will happen to the soul after the body is laid in the ground? There is that intermediate state. These are things that are all called personal eschatology. One of these days we'll develop all these things. Uh, an excellent passage of scripture. If you have any questions on personal eschatology, uh, read 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Wonderful passage of scripture, uh, probably from verses 1, maybe down to the 13th or the 15th verse. Uh, excellent passage of scripture along those lines. But they ask about Elijah. And the reason why they ask about Elijah is because, once again, within current thinking, Elijah plays a pivotal role in the coming of the Messiah. And their, their, their line of reasoning seems to be this. We now understand and know that you are the Messiah. We, we, we've, we've confessed this uh, by way of the testimony of Peter. We've, we've seen this uh, by way of the, the voice of the Father uh, on, the, on the mount. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. The Son of God, again, is a messianic category as well as a, as a category of his essential nature as he, the eternal Son of God. We get this. We understand all this. But what about Elijah? We thought Elijah was supposed to come. It's a very interesting question. Let me say this. It is a question that is still interacted with in our day. You can still uh, read theological journals and, and theological dictionaries and encyclopedias, and, and you will, when it comes to Elijah and when it comes to eschatology and the re return of Jesus Christ and the relationship between Elijah and John the Baptist, all kinds of questions come up. It's still a question that is discussed in this day. And so when, our Lord, uh, when, when they asked our, our, our Lord the question, notice what he says here. Again, in verse 11, and they ask him, saying, why say the scribes that Elias must first come? And he answered and told them, Elias verily cometh first and restoreth all things. And how it is written of the Son of Man that he must suffer many things and be said at naught. But I say unto you that Elias is indeed come, and they have done unto him whatsoever they listed as it is written of him. Ultimately, what I want you to see in this passage or in, in these passages, and I think that this is the main thrust. Other things have to be said, but I think where our Lord Jesus is going with this is essentially this. However, we understand the role of Elijah and the relationship with John the Baptist and it's purposely brought together here. And we're going to discuss that in a little bit. What I want you to see and understand is what our Lord is saying in spite of their great anticipation for the coming of the for the coming of Elijah and for the ministry of the Messiah in spite of their great anticipation for that you know what they did with the one who represented Elijah they did whatever they wanted which is a way of saying they put him to death or referring to John the Baptist and in, in, in the past, in the parallel passage of Scripture in Matthew chapter seventeen, uh, the Lord and we'll get to that in a little bit. The Lord Jesus Christ says, and they and, and they'll do the same to me as well. So in spite of all this great desire for the coming of John, uh, for, for the coming of Elijah, for all in spite of all this great desire for the coming Messiah, let sinful men get their hands on the forerunner or on Christ Himself, and what will they do? They'll put Him to death. 
And you see, this, this, this causes us to, to interact with these questions. Well, what do we do with this Christ who has come on our behalf? You see the whole pivot, the whole response to not only Christ coming at Christmas, but Christ as he comes in all the full revelation of what he said here in the word of God. We'll develop these things, but as I said before, that's what I want you to see. This is the main thing that's happening here. The main thing that's happening here is that there was a rejection of the one that represented Elijah, even as there was a, re- even as there was a rejection of Christ himself. But let's get to the details here. And let's look at the passage again. Why say the scribes? Well, you see, this was the, these were the official um, uh, interpreters uh, of the law. They were the ones uh, that you would go to if you had a question. And at this point, it's kind of interesting. Their theology was not, was not wrong at this point. Uh, the, the scribes were saying by way of a study of Scripture that uh, before the Messiah comes, uh, Elijah would come and prepare the way for him. And what's interesting is that they're picking up on the great Old Testament passages of uh, Malachi chapter 3, Malachi chapter 4, Isaiah chapter 40. All these passages speak about uh, the idea of a forerunner coming. In Isaiah chapter 40, uh, it's interesting, uh, uh, Isaiah says, Behold, I, I I shall send my servant before thy face who shall prepare thy way, the forerunner. Uh, Malachi chapter four. You might want to, if you want if you have, if you, you might want to turn back there. Uh, Malachi chapter uh, chapter three and chapter four. Uh, we see the same uh, again. Just go to Matthew and it's the, it's the, it's the uh, uh, just a few books back there in the Old Testament. Uh, Malachi chapter um, uh, three and then uh, chapter four. Uh, you're going to find uh, again this reference to uh, uh, the reference to. Uh, uh, John the Baptist coming. And what you're going to see there in chapter 3, again, is you have this reference uh, to Elijah coming. And uh, in, 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 in Malachi chapter 4, you're going to have this reference again to, to Elijah coming. At the, at the end of the chapter, in, in Malachi chapter 4, uh, verse 5, you have again a reference to uh, the ministry of Elijah before the coming of the Messiah. And again, as I said before, the scribes rightly understood this, and they were correct in their understanding that, 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 that Elijah was to come first. But notice what our Lord says about this, about this, uh, about this ministry of Elijah. He goes on to say this in verse 12, And he answered and he told them, Elias verily cometh first, and restoreth all, and restoreth all things. Notice what he's saying here. Yes, it's true. Elijah is the forerunner. Elijah is coming first. And he restores all things. And now this idea of restoring all things has that emphasis again that we see in Malachi there of, uh, of the hearts of the children being turned to the father and the father and the hearts of the fathers being returned to the children. And so in other words, the work of Elijah is a preparatory work for the coming of Messiah. Again here in verse 12, uh, and, and uh, he restoreth all things and how it is written of the son of man that he must suffer many things and be set at naught. Now this is interesting. Because what we have here is, again, we have the combination of the ministry of Elijah with the suffering of the Messiah. This was something in the common uh, uh, thought process was overlooked. The idea of a suffering Messiah was not predominant in their thinking. And this was the point that had to be established. But notice what we see right here in this passage, as our Lord says here in verse 12, how it is written of the Son of Man that he must suffer many things. Well, our Lord Jesus Christ could be referring to a number of passages. He could be referring to Psalm 22, that great passage that starts out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He, of course, could be referring to, to Isaiah 53 that we've, we, uh, that we've mentioned uh, earlier. 
But in this passage of scripture, our Lord is saying that by way of the ministry of Elijah connected with the coming of the Messiah, what he is saying is this, in a sense, all this has taken place, but it's taken place in the ministry of John the Baptist. And that's why he goes on to say this, but I say unto you that Elias is indeed come and they have done unto him whatsoever they listed. Now take your Bible and just go to Matthew chapter 17 here. Matthew chapter 17. And, you're, and this is again the parallel account. But I do want you to notice a number of things here. Matthew chapter 17. And we can start with verse 9 and you're going to see how the context is the same. Matthew chapter 17 verses 9 and following. And as they came down from the mountain, Jesus charged them, saying, Tell the vision to no man, until the Son of Man be risen again from the dead. And his disciples asked him, saying, Why then say the scribes that Elias must first come? And Jesus answered and said unto them, Elias truly shall come first, and, sh and shall restore all things. But I say unto you that Elias is come already, now listen to this, and they knew him not, but they have done unto him whatsoever they listed. Likewise shall also the Son of Man suffer of them. As I said before, this passage of Scripture in its primary thrust is about the rejection of Jesus Christ as the Messiah. That's what it's about. All the speak, all the all this idea of this anticipation for the for Elijah to come, and this anticipation uh, for Messiah to come. Again, what is it at the at the at the at the, at the Passover at the Passover meals? There's that chair left for Elijah. Is there not? Thinking of, 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 of his expected return. Well, all of this, uh, uh, you know, seeming desire for Elijah to come back. Let Elijah show up, and what will they do to him? Whatever they want. In other words, they'll cast him aside, and that's exactly what they did to John the Baptist. It's interesting to see the parallels between um, uh, between uh, John the Baptist and Elijah. There's parallels by way of their by way of their outward appearance, and there's parallel parallels by way of their character. And let me just give you some things about Elijah by way of his character. I, I think this is uh, excellent. What uh, uh, what uh, what some of these uh, uh, what some uh, authorities have to say here concerning the character of Elijah. Listen to this. Elijah's influence was due to the force of his character, the strength of his will, and his personal courage. His faith in God seemed to know no limit or questioning. His zeal for Jehovah was an all-absorbing motive of his life, so that he justly can say, I've been very zealous for the Lord, for the, Lord the God of hosts. No danger or duty was too severe to shake his confidence. No labor too great for his Lord. His courage undaunted, even in the presence of royalty and for famine. His obedience was simple and unquestioning as a child's. Tender of soul, he can sympathize with the widow when she lost her child or weep over the sad condition of his deluded countrymen. Stern in principle, he was in his opposition to sin as fierce as the fire that more than once answered his command. He was by nature a recluse, only appearing before men to deliver his message from God and to enforce it by miracle and then disappearing from sight again. In the New Testament, we, we read of him many times. He's mentioned about 30 times in the New Testament. Uh, many things uh, uh, come to the fore by way of Elijah and his importance. And here we see it here by way of his, his role as the forerunner of our Lord Jesus Christ. And John's character was very much the same. You remember the, 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 the end of, uh, of, of, of Elijah? You remember, what, you remember the, that, uh, that wicked king and that ungodly woman? As, as, as some of the commentators say, uh, there was Ahab and Jezebel, uh, a wicked woman and a weak man, together combined with royal power. And there was Herod and Herodias, again, another weak man and a wicked, uh, wicked woman together, and c combined with royal authority. And what do they both do? Give them a chance. 
Oh, they'll show you what they'll do to, to this one who they say they can't wait for to come along. They'll put him to death. And so you see this idea is all about rejection. And as Matthew brings it out, clearer than Mark does, the same thing that they did to John the Baptist, they're going to do to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now it is interesting that our Lord says here, again, going back to, uh, going back to Mark, our Lord Jesus Christ says that, uh, uh, that Elias uh, verily is indeed come. Uh, Elias does indeed come first. Uh, I do believe in my, my understanding of uh, how end events work. I do believe that there shall be uh, an appearance of Elijah uh, at the last time, how this will work out. I, I can't give you the details on that. Again, like I said, these questions, I have questions myself. But I do believe that there shall be this appearance of Elijah. Uh, and I would even say this, could it be when we, when we look at the ministries of Elijah and John the Baptist and compare them, to compare them together, could we say this? I just set this out as a, as a question. Could we say this? Could it be that John the Baptist fills the role of, an, of Elijah in the first coming of our Lord Jesus Christ? You remember in the first coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in Luke chapter 4 when Jesus preaches from Isaiah 61 and when he declares the acceptable year of the Lord? And then in Malachi chapter 4 verse, two, verse 1, I believe it is, when, when, when Elijah shall come before that great and dreadful day of the Lord, the day of his wrath? Could it be that, that John the Baptist was the forerunner of the day of mercy and Elijah is the forerunner of the day of wrath? You see, I have these questions too as I come down from the mountain, so to speak. I have these questions as well. But when we look at this again, we see where the, the primary thrust is all centering in on this rejection, both of John the Baptist and especially this rejection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so when we come to the end here, how do we, how do we deal with this? This is, a, this is a very, in one sense, this is a very abrupt passage. Uh, the passage doesn't move us to, to a conclusion that, uh, uh, that we could just kind of neatly package together and, uh, and move on from. So what I would say to you is this, is, is understand that there is no proper understanding of the Christ of Christmas unless you see him in his suffering and his rising again from the dead. I would call you and I would urge you to understand that this message of a, of a, of a, of a suffering Savior is a message that in spite of how often people say they long to, and they love this little babe of Christmas, Unless there is an embrace of the Christ of Calvary, there is no real love for that babe of Bethlehem. And so as we come to Christmas, as we come to the end of this passage of Scripture, I want to encourage you and I want to exhort you, yes, love everything that the incarnation means. Love singing these songs that we sing. You love the songs, don't you? We, and me and Rick were saying, we don't need the music this morning. These are Christmas songs. Everybody can sing these Christmas songs. We love these Christmas songs, do we not? We love the, the time of the season. We love what it means for our families and everything else. But do you see how shallow that is in and of itself? There must be an embrace of Christ. There must be an embrace of Christ suffering for sins, suffering for this man's sins, suffering for every one of your sins. Now you see, and until you embrace him, you can talk about how you love Christmas all you want. But just like the scribes in that day and just like the people of that day, let them get their hands on Christ and see what they do to him. Oh, brothers and sisters, let us embrace not only this Christ of Christmas, but let us embrace this Christ of Calvary as well.